left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Do I want to keep this house and rent it out and be the sort of active real estate investor slash landlord? Or do I want to take a more passive route? Passive real estate investments. I said, I don't know why I wouldn't do this when I'm looking at returns and cash flow that mirrors or maybe above a lot of active investments and I don't have to worry about it. So I haven't really looked back since. A goal of mine is I want to generate cash flow and back end returns on my investments. So this really fit my model. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Piper. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. Okay, we're pleased today to have Drew Walgren. He's the Director of Capital Markets at MAG Capital Partners. They're a private investment firm focusing on single-tenant net lease development and sale leaseback structured transactions. That sounds like a mouthful, but I've invested with them, and it's industrial triple net sale leasebacks is what I call it, and it's a fantastic model, and we'll get into that in a minute. But it's an interesting story how Drew and I met. I don't know if you remember, Drew, but you sent me a cold message through Bigger Pockets, I believe, and I ignored it for about a week because I didn't know you. And I was just thinking, why, why is he calling me? He wants something. 
And then I decided, you know what? He's a syndicator. I'm looking for new deals. And I decided to uh, connect with you. And we really hit it off. And I really like your product and what you guys are doing. And so I've invested in, I think, three deals since then. So the lesson to me is just because it's someone you don't know, still pick up the phone, talk to them and, and get to know them. So we've had, we've had a good relationship and I appreciate that, uh, that cold message you sent me. So today I'm hoping we can just start with kind of your financial story. Where did you start? How did you get to the business? How did you find passive investing? And where are you now? So if we can kind of start with a little bit of that, that'd be great. Sure. I'll go back a bit. I went to school here. I'm, I'm from the Bay Area in California here. Don't hold that against me, but went to school here uh, right in my backyard at California State University, East Bay, as they call it now. Used to be Hayward, but I uh, uh, majored in finance. And this is going back to just a little bit before the uh, financial crash. So when that happened, I, I sort of kissed a future in finance goodbye at that point. I found myself in a, a pretty long career with Liberty Mutual, managing a vendor program and sort of managing risk as well. You know, it's kind of funny, the finance and the risk portion kind of tie into where I'm at now. But during that time, uh, I had bought a house and at the very bottom of the market and um, good timing there. And I sold it uh, sometime later and, and made a pretty nice gain on it after remodeling the house. And that wasn't the intention. Um, it was the house for me and my family. And when I sold, though, I had quite a bit of proceeds. And that was sort of that fork in the road uh, point for me, where I said, do I want to keep this house and rent it out and be the sort of active real estate investor slash landlord? Or do I want to take a more passive route? And, you know, not everyone knows about passive real estate investments. You know, it's a little bit hidden. People think of real estate investing as buying a house, managing tenants, you know, fixing problems, getting those calls from tenants about issues. And people are a little turned off by that. But at the time, my older brother, Neil, worked for an investment firm that syndicated projects similar to the ones we do at Mag Capital Partners, but they partnered up with different sponsors and operators to raise equity for them. So he kind of introduced me to that even well before I sold that house. And so I was aware of it and we're close. So we would uh, have beers at night and, and talk about you know what they were doing. And I would ask probably uh, 2 million questions about you know wh what every scenario is and how it plays out, what investors get, what the sponsor gets, and really just understood the structure after some time. So I immediately, well, I shouldn't say immediately, after sort of weighing that sort of active versus passive investing route, you know, I could speak for myself a little bit personally here, which is I'm kind of a hands-on guy. Uh, I'm a DIY guy. So I thought, you know, I, and I wasn't moving very far away when I sold this house or was looking to. So I said, I don't know that I want a tenant in this house where I am just a 15, 20 minute drive away. Um, I will be too hands-on. This is going to suck a lot of my time, attention, possibly give me anxiety and keep me up at night, depending on what the situation is. So being that I kind of had that background and education here, I started investing in syndications, uh, as people call them, you know, alternative investments, as I like to call them, but passive real estate investments. I said, I don't know why I wouldn't do this when I'm looking at returns and cash flow that mirrors or maybe above a lot of a lot of active investments, and I don't have to worry about it. So I haven't really looked back since, really. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I invested in one right after the sale of that house, and then I've continued to 
distribute you know those proceeds and and savings and earnings that I've accumulated since then into more and more of these deals because I really uh, I love the tax benefits and I love the cash flow part that's really you know to me that's a a goal of mine is I want to generate cash flow and back end returns on my investments so this really fit my model interesting so how did you find I know your brother was in the business but how did you find other syndicators or deals or did you just invest in his stuff I invested in his firm first, naturally, right? He's my brother. I said, hey, I trust you. There's uh, that trust level there. But he started making some introductions. And at one point, I did invest with Mag Capital Partners, who I'm now with. So there was kind of an early relationship there, invested in one of their deals and really got kind of familiar with the model and the strategy back then before I joined the team. So there was definitely some introductions happening there. And and certainly some of them, you know, my brother didn't say, hey, I, I'm, not, I'm not vouching for these guys. I'm just sort of introducing you to what's out there. So that's always been sort of fun. Uh, back then, I would look through deals and I would get on the phone with my brother and ask a million questions. What do you think about this? X, Y, and Z. And we'd go back and forth. And, you know, that's how you learn. You, you ask a lot of questions of someone who's really experienced. But, you know, I'll, I'll fast forward here after being an, on the LP investor side for a while. I at a certain point said, I don't know that there's much growth room here uh, where I'm at with this corporate job. And I really like what I'm hearing and seeing over here. And uh, my brother was with the firm that, you know, he wasn't really happy with the sort of the structure of the firm. And he was uh, looking to kind of move into a more, you know, managing the entire firm um, position there. So him and I were both a little unhappy. And he said, hey, what, what would you think about creating our own investment group? And at the beginning, you know, we can just be we can raise equity and partner with some of these firms that we know are really experienced operators. And so we did, we jumped over, um, that was about the middle of 2019. So here we are a little over a year and a half later, but um, at the time we started our own firm and quickly identified Mac Capital Partners as an operator who really had that experience. We liked the strategy. We felt were very dependable. And so we, you know, we didn't want to start partnering up with people that we weren't really sure of their performance and track record. So we found ourselves partnering with them right from the beginning. And after that, it just sort of made sense to merge, you know, because that really over time, you know, I said it out loud many times. I said, I don't know that there's any other sponsors I want to partner with. So at that point, it doesn't make yeah. much more sense to, to be two separate entities. And we sort of rolled up and brought our investor network into, into their organization. And since then, him and I have both really been developing and growing the capital side because that's an important part. You know, there was a plenty of expertise and experience on the operational side and the acquisition side, but you have to match that equity side and and bring these deals to the right group of investors who are looking for deals like this. Right. So I, I do want to get into Mag Capital and understand more about these deals because it's very unique. But I'd, I'd like to back up real quick. When you were doing uh, passive investing, were you just doing these um, industrial deals or were you in the typical multifamily deals and mobile homes and some of the other more typical syndications? Good question. Yeah, I am in one multifamily deal. Um, I didn't go as heavy into that as I feel like a lot of investors do. I am in a another industrial deal with a separate uh, sponsor that's it's actually a multi-tenant flex industrial space. So, you know, eight buildings, there's something like 150 tenants very large complex. There is a mobile home park I'm in as well. So I love being diversified, but 
much more heavy into the, the deals that we do. And with Mag Capital Partners, before I joined the team and since then, I've really you know pushed a lot of my funds in this direction because part of it is, look, I'm, I'm very close to these deals. You know, I'm, we're helping put them together. I'm working with lenders. The more exposure I have there, I feel like invest in, in what you know and what you have um, a lot of experience with. So it's, you know, over time, I have been a little bit more heavy in the industrial space and maybe it's just a, an affinity that grows naturally when you work in the space, right? Yeah, well, I mean, and that also gives confidence to your investors when you're investing in your own deals, right? If you had said, yeah, now that I'm with MAG, I, I don't invest in any of their deals, <laughs> that would make me a little nervous. But I do like the, the, the way you were talking about you know, how your brother kind of got you into it and you asked him a million questions about everything because you had someone experienced to kind of help you through it. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with left field investors is build that community where we can, you know, some of us can be big brothers to the people that come in and, and help them out and just kind of educate them. And also, you know, you end up getting that back from the people as well. So can you talk a little bit about what the uh, single tenant net lease development, what MAG Partners does? Yeah, absolutely. So we focus on single tenants, industrial assets with long-term absolute net leases or triple net leases, as a lot of people call them. And really to be more specific, uh, the acquisitions we make are usually sale leasebacks. And that's kind of really makes the whole investment and the strategy kind of unique. I mean, single tenant, triple net properties are, you know, you don't actually see a lot of them being syndicated out there. There's not a lot of operators that operate in that space already. Um, and then you sort of get even more specific with the sale leasebacks. So we acquire properties from a seller who operates and already occupies a property and simultaneously lease it back to them for usually a 15 to 20 year absolute net lease. And, you know, just looking at the timeline, we make the acquisition, execute this long-term lease. And, you know, every deal is a little different as far as the targeted hold period. But, you know, four or five years later, let's say just on average, if we're exiting the property, there's a lot of length left on that lease. So we've really created a, a long-term st uh, stable asset. And when we sell, it still has that stability. You still have 10 to 15 years left on that lease. So it's a pretty attractive, valuable asset for a lot of people who want that consistent uh, cash flowing property that has a very strong, reliable tenant in place. Okay. So you mentioned the term absolute net lease and triple net lease, which I think are the same thing. Can you explain those a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So this is a lease that puts the responsibilities of insurance, taxes, maintenance, and even roof and structure all falls on the responsibility of the tenant. Um, so this is pretty common for, for long-term leases and single-tenant properties, of course. It's pretty hard to structure that for a multi-tenanted property. So we're really taking all of these expenses that can that you do your best to manage and predict in other multi-tenant properties that don't have a net lease, and you're removing that whole element. So it makes there's two parts of the cash flow consistency for us, and one is removing all of the expenses and all of the unknowns that come with that. That could be an elevator needing replacement. That could be a roof that that needs replacement earlier than expected. So these are costly items that can erode cash flow, right? So we remove that and then having single, a single tenant property, we have 100% occupancy. So the end result and how our investments are really set apart than a lot of others is the cash flow that we see on the pro forma 
is almost, I mean, really, it's, it's basically exact as to what we're really seeing here. There's no, uh, there's not very many unknowns outside of the default of a, uh, of a tenant in place. So we know exactly what we're going to collect month to month, and we know we don't have any expenses coming in. So it's really easy to look at your pro forma and know ex exactly what's coming in, and you can rely on that amount to predict cash flow as well as overall IRR returns and, and ROIs. What can go wrong? I mean, it seems like the tenant is paying for everything. You don't have to pay for anything. You're just collecting rents. I understand they can you know, go out of business or, or something like that, but it seems like at least the ones I've seen, most of these have been companies that have been in business for a really long time at that location for a really long time. So what's the downside? What's the risk in these deals? The risk is all in the, having a single tenant. So, and there's kind of two sides to that. It's a more concentrated risk, but on the other side of that coin, we're able to dig in and understand the risk much more than you could with, let's say, a multifamily tenant or a, a single tenant in an office building. We do a lot more due diligence and we ask for a lot more upfront because that is a more concentrated risk having a single tenant. So we mitigate that a few different ways. Um, one is we build into our long-term leases uh, required financial reporting and audited annualized reporting from the tenant. So we're able to see how they're performing, how they're doing, but we're looking at that all extensively before we close on a deal. This is all part of our due diligence we, we're a lot like a private equity firm in that way, where we're really digging into what this company is, what the industry is doing, what the market is like for this, you know, for this particular tenant. And it's, this is kind of the fun part of the business we're in, in my opinion. We, we look at deals with tenants in all kinds of different industries. So you know, I'll give you an example. There's, there's one out of you know, a couple dozen in our pipeline right now that is in the logging industry. So you know, all of a sudden we do a lot of research and, and we do a lot of digging into the financials, which is pretty, pretty consistent all the way across. You know, we're going to look at historical financials. Uh, we want to see their EBITDA margins. We want to see revenues and everything in between. So we're kind of unique in, in this way because there's not a lot of real estate firms that have a whole credit analysis team. So we have guys that have this background, this financial analysis background and they're they're not really real estate guys they're they're credit analysts and so we have them on our team to look at existing assets and the tenants and how they're doing um, but of course to do a lot of due diligence on the front end before we jump into sale leaseback with the tenant we want to understand what that risk is so that's really something we pride ourselves in is is understanding because you know there there's always some risk with every tenant you know these aren't these aren't credit tenants for the most part this isn't a home depot or a Walgreens, for instance. And so that's why we have that our team built to, to dig in with these tenants because they would be considered sub-investment grade tenants, which isn't to say that they're a strong company. It's to say that they are not doing over $100 million a year or so in revenues, and they're not publicly traded. So they don't have a credit rating from a standard and poor's or other financial institution. So we really look at that opportunity to find some of these deals that have are, are really perceived at having a high level of risk. But once we open up their books and look under the hood, we're able to find some very quality tenants who have a lot of growth happening, a lot more growth potential on the horizon and find opportunities where we can have a strong tenant and get yield at the same time. So it's, it's pretty hard to, to get the yield we're getting. If you want a 
you know, what people would call a national credit tenant, like a Home Depot, for instance. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. I'm a passive investor. And typically when I look at like a multifamily deal, I I make sure I'm comfortable and I, I know, like, and trust the sponsor first. And then I might look at the market and make sure it's a market that I like or I want to be in. And then I look at the deal and I kind of know how to analyze a multifamily deal. There's a lot of books out there on it. Leftfield investors, we have our own tool to analyze these deals. How do I analyze one of your deals as a passive? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff, similar things apply, right? You're going to look at some comp rates of you know, the asset class and what they're trading for and, and cap rate and rents. We have a kind of a unique negotiating point when we go into these deals is we're negotiating both the rent and the acquisition price. But those are two things that any investor should look at too. You should be going, hey, what is this reasonable? And sometimes we get a question actually about the rents and they say, hey, this, this looks like it's below market rent um, that you're putting together on this lease. You know, why is that? And we use that really as a downside to mitigate downside risk. Really, we want to have a tenant that's a little stickier, that wants to stay into a below market rent situation. And also, if we do, uh, should a, a tenant break that lease or go bankrupt, for instance, you know, in a worst case scenario, if we have a below market lease rate, we really don't have our, our backs against the wall like you would with an above market lease rate, where you're really struggling to find someone to, to fill that, that lease rate. So, but these are normal things you would look at um, with a lot of others. I think for us, for our deals, they're a little bit more location independent. I think having a strong market is, is always good, but really where we're at with a single tenant, a lot of these industrial tenants say they don't operate in the middle of a metropolitan area. You just don't see a lot of uh, manufacturing and 
large storage warehouses right in the middle of a you know a primary market you're not going to find uh, these assets in downtown dallas you know there's not a lot at least so and that helps because we're able to find yield at some of these properties where hey they're a little bit outside of that primary market and but we have a tenant here who's operated out of this location for a very long time they have very strong credit and we're signing a 20-year lease with them so there's more uh, concentration on who the tenant is in this case versus uh, a market because if you know if I'm in a multifamily property uh, you know there's going to be churn that's um, that's expected so how easily will you fill those vacancies um, because there is a constant churn at many multifamily properties and maybe it's not you know 50% a year but still you need to make sure that the demand is is pretty consistent there but going back to your question you're going to look at a few of those normal things but you are going to look at the financials of the tenant. That's not something that you would analyze um, with a multi-tenanted property. So we share all that with our investors. Um, we really take pride in being really transparent and obtaining a lot of information from the tenant. And we put together our own internal credit memo as well that really, I think, puts in pretty plain language what we're seeing, but also shares all the raw data. And I think a, a nice evolution of that credit memo in the last 12 months is we've begun to show in a sale leaseback situation, what the financials look like for a tenant uh, post-transaction. So you have a seller who's also your tenant, and they're going to be pulling proceeds, and it may be $10 million, for instance. So what do their financials look like post-sale leaseback? Because there are $10 million of proceeds that are available. And so there's, you know, we interview the C-suite at each one of these tenants before doing a transaction, and we want to find out, you know, what are the intentions of the company after receiving these proceeds? What do they want to do with that? Is it to pay off some long-term debt? Is it to invest in um, equipment uh, or a new product line? What might that be? And how does that look like on their financial statement after the transaction? So that's something that you know not everyone is super comfortable with, but I think most people are able to see revenues and, and EBITDA margin uh, fairly easily. And, and we're pretty transparent, candid about how we feel about the margins and how that stacks up against the industry. Interesting. So how do you find these these companies? Do you use brokers or is there, because it doesn't seem like you, know, you can't just walk into a bunch of industrial companies and say, hey, you want to you wanna sell us your property? We'll lease it back to you. You know, right. they obviously have to be part of their business plan, but how, how do you find them? Yeah, maybe one day we'll have a call team that just calls in industrial tenants and says, hey, do you want to do this? But no, we're, that's, you know, we're not a hundred man shop. And that's honestly, it's something that's a lot of broker brokerages have really kind of mastered. They've, they have these teams that reach out and really canvas to talk to, to owners and operators of these properties to see if this is a good solution for them. And, and after that, they, they bring these opportunities to us. So brokers are a big portion of how we get these deals. And part of that is, you know, building that relationship with them. They understand that we specialize in sale leasebacks. We know the right questions to ask and have that experience to approach these and get creative solutions for those who are looking to sell and, and do this transaction. So we have that reputation in the industry and with some brokers, it really helps. Um, some of these sellers really have a timeline that they want to hit, and it might be a little tighter than your average deal. They may say, hey, look, I have you know certain maybe bridge funds or something that I would like to pay off in the next month and a half, whatever it might be. Can they're asking their broker if they can find a buyer who can reliably execute. So a lot of times a, a supplier of off-market deals. So that's great. The other way we source a lot of these deals is through 
private equity groups. And this is another source that's kind of developing and growing over time. As um, we've done a lot of these sale leasebacks behind a private equity group who may acquire an operating company, and they're looking to decrease the basis of that investment in this property. I'm sorry, in the operating company. So if they have a $20 million acquisition of a company, half of that, maybe they have $10 million that's tied up in the real estate. So shortly thereafter, or sometimes even simultaneously, they're looking to do a sale leaseback and basically liquidate the value and the equity in this property so they can lower the basis of the acquisition of the operating company. Obviously, they have their own returns they want to get as well. And, but sometimes they also use this instead of injecting more capital to grow that company, um, whether that's, once again, paying off some debts, investing in new equipment or personnel, um, whatever that might be. So it's kind of a, a fun um, a fun space to be in because every deal is a little different. Every seller has their own intentions and motivations behind the sale leaseback. But those private equity groups, after we've done a deal with them, they're apt to come back to us as they make another acquisition down the road. Who's your competition? And I don't mean specific company names, but are there other people doing this? And, and when you get in with one of these deals, are you competing against someone else? Are there other offers on the table? Or is it, it seems like this would kind of be, they, they would go to one, one person, they'd go to you and then, and they wouldn't shop it around kind of thing. Yeah, we, you know, we compete with some large institutions. You know, they're really, as far as who we're competing with out there, there's really not a lot of people that are syndicating these types of acquisitions. So we're really unique in that case. There's a lot of institutions that have this experience and have a whole team that specializes in sale leasebacks, but some of them are, are public REITs. You know, they're looking to add to their portfolio. So, you know, it's really important to us to really have some, have that institutional quality that can compete with these large, uh, you know, 150 man shops that have quite a bit of experience and quite a bit of capital at their fingertips. So it's, we're not competing with uh, individual, you know, 1031 exchange guys generally. It's, there's quite a few large institutions that are out there putting offers on the same properties that we do. And so when you sell, it seems like from our conversations, you're not typically wanting to hold these very long, right? Four or five years, and then you kind of stabilize it and sell it to a REIT to who do you sell these to? Someone that's just kind of collecting the rent, right? Correct. Yeah. And there are some, you know, I mentioned we're not usually competing against very many 1031 exchange guys. And that's because the nature of a sale leaseback, it's much more complex. It takes a little bit more sophistication to, to really come in and be a, a buyer that knows what they're doing. Uh, but when we sell, it's a stabilized asset. So you, like I said, you have 10 to 15 years left on this. So there are quite a few 1031 exchange buyers, you know, individuals who many of them looking to move into a more passive type of real estate investment where they can sit on an asset that has a triple net lease and a single tenant who's very strong and collect, you know, mailbox money, as they call it in the uh, triple net world, right? It's very passive. And you know, there's, I've talked with uh, some people that are in that space and, you know, some of them are getting older. Hey, I used to develop and, and do value add deals and multifamily, but, you know, I'm in my seventies and I'd like to kick back a little more. And as much as I enjoyed all that active uh, management, I would like to sit back in 1031 exchange into a property that's more passive and, and enjoy my time a little more. But going back to what you said, though, there are plenty of institutions that we compete with on the acquisition side that end up buying a property from us when we go to sell. So it's a kind of a, a small world. And some of these big guys you find yourself doing transactions with 
as well as competing with at the same time. How do you decide when to exit a deal that's cash flowing and you're making your returns? How do you decide to exit? Well, we have our target. So, I mean, we always have our investors in mind. You know, if we say we're going to hold it for four to six years and it's year two, you know, that might, there better be a good reason why we would ever consider a sale at year two. And, you know, if we did, there, there most likely would be a very good reason. But there's headwinds and tailwinds as the markets change and evolve over time. I mean, we look at the last 12 months, we exited four properties in about a month and a half from about a, a basically all at the end of 2020. And part of that was because there's tailwinds in the market right now. Industrial is an asset class that's really shined across the pandemic. It's shown incredible stability and, and um, resilience. So having that along with low interest rates makes for a great buying environment, which, you know, on our acquisition side means there's a little more competition potentially. Uh, but on the, the exit side, we have properties that, um, you know, some of these we sold a little bit earlier than the targeted uh, date, you know, six to 12 months earlier than the sort of minimum exit date that we had projected. But that's what a sponsor is supposed to do, right? Make these responsible decisions, which is, hey, we have incredible tailwinds and an incredible demand behind these properties we're holding. We would be foolish and, and not responsible if we held these during this time. So some of these we we opted to exit and we're able to return, you know, at and above projected annualized returns to investors. So certainly no complaints from our investors on those, but it's a, it's a decision, you know, we really have to make at the time and look at because alternatively, it could be looking the other way. Um, interest rates could spike around the time you were looking to sell and we would sit and hold that property for longer and continue to cash flow in that kind of situation. But, you know, it's not just interest rates, but whatever may headwinds we may be facing, um, if it means that we're not going to to get a favorable return when, when selling the asset, then we're going to continue to hold. And we always target a window in time for our exits. You know, like I said, four to six years or three to five, you know, five to seven being really the longest usually that we'll target. But there's a good reason for that. And it's because we're not going to be bound to a particular time because it's not going to be advantageous to our investors or to us. You know, and we, we have objectives pretty closely aligned. So we want to make the decision, the best decision for everyone. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the, and I know it's different in every deal, but typical returns during what kind of cash flow are we talking about? And then at exit, what are the typical uh, returns that, that someone could expect from an average deal? Sure. Yeah. Cash flow. Um, I love these deals. And a, a big reason why I started investing in them was the day one cash flow. There's a lot of opportunities I've seen out there that there's some value add aspect to it. There's some management going to increase the ROI on a property. But these are, are fantastic investments because it has that day one cash flow. So usually we're starting around eight or 9% normally, I would say, as far as preferred returns and distributions to investors. And that increases over time. So we're able to build value, not only in the property, but build the cash flow as well by uh, building in annualized annual increases in the rent to the tenant. And that's you know usually two, sometimes three percent annually. So we pass that along to investors. So you know when you get to maybe year year four or five, you could be at nine, ten, even eleven percent as you go on further over time, and those those uh, distributions increase. But um, that's once again building value, right? Your net operating income of the property is increasing. So 
even with a cap rate, let's let's just say static across five years, you're still paying down the principal of the financing, um, but you're also increasing the NOI. So you see that um, return when we exit, and those profits are turned back to um, to investors. So cash flow and that back end profit generally we're around the window of 17 to 19% annualized return once we exit. That's great. That's really interesting. So I'm going to close up here, but the, I always have a final question that I like to ask, and it doesn't really have anything to do with, uh, with your business, but what's a great podcast that you, uh, that you like to listen to, real estate or, or otherwise? I'm a huge podcast fan. My favorite real estate podcast, because there's so many and there's so much time that you could potentially dedicate, and I just don't feel like I have that much time because I'd have to do so much reading and talking that it's hard to listen while I'm doing those things. Um, but a quick podcast that I love is called the Real Estate Espresso Podcast with a, a, a guy named Victor Menashe. He's uh, written a few books about real estate, really fantastic books too. So if you enjoy his podcast, check out his books. They're five minute podcast. So I love that. That's why it's called the espresso. He has some, he calls it the, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate. So I love that. I can knock that out on a trip to the store and be done with it. And I, I love it. So my big recommendation, go check it out if you haven't heard of it before. Yeah, I will. I've heard of Victor. I, I think I heard him speak at a real estate guys seminar, but I have not heard of his podcast. So I'll definitely add that to my list, which is the main reason I ask that question. So. As we're closing up, can you tell people if they're interested in Mag Capital Partners or connecting with you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. You can email me directly at drew at magcp.com, or you can go check out our website. You can submit a little information about yourself and, and we'll set up a, an introduction call. Our website is magcp.com. That's like Mag Capital Partners, magcp.com. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes so people can contact you if they have any questions. But look, this has been fantastic. As you know, I really like this asset class and, and I do like dealing with, with you guys over at Mag. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast and we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jim. It's a pleasure. I had a nice time chatting with Drew. You know, it really was interesting the, the way we met and I kind of blew him off. And in retrospect, I'm really glad I didn't. It made me reevaluate you know, how I'm gonna go forward with talking to people. It, it never hurts to talk to someone and, and see what they're about. You know, I was always afraid of, oh, it's gotta be a scam if someone's cold calling me through LinkedIn or through bigger pockets. And that's definitely not the case. I got great connections with Drew. I'm now in three of those deals. You know, it's a pretty unique asset class. And I really like their approach to it. The fact that you get some diversification from the normal multifamily that I do, or, or even the, the mobile homes and the typical assets, you can't get better cash flow than industrial triple net leases. It's almost guaranteed to pay out. And then you also get the upside when they sell. It was definitely recession resistant. It was pandemic resistant. They were able to continue getting cash flow on all their deals. So I really appreciate Drew coming on. And I am really glad I responded to his note on Bigger Pockets and didn't blow him off because we've started a nice relationship that I think will be profitable to both of us in the long run.
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.